Well, we are, as you know, in the midst of a series on the Ten Commandments, and today as part of this series, we're going to take a break from focusing on just one particular commandment and instead look at an overarching question that has great impact on how we view God's law. It's, it's a somewhat controversial question. It's one that is far more complex than might initially seem. And it's a question that when you consider some of the particulars of it, it can kind of just make your head spin a little bit. But it's also a question that has massive relevance for us regarding how we navigate our lives. And our convictions about how we answer this question greatly influences our decisions and our behaviors. Here's the question. Is it ever permissible to break God's moral law? Is it ever permissible to break God's moral law? Are we ever justified in God's sight to break his commands? Are there ever situations where he doesn't care if we do something that he has explicitly told us not to do? Now, first, a clarification. I'm not, in asking this question, saying, is it ever permissible for us to break the ceremonial or civil aspects of God's law in the Old Testament? Like, you can't wear this type of clothing, or, uh, you know, you can't plant your your fields with these types of seeds, or you can't, you have to do this festival, and you have to do this sacrifice, and you can't eat bacon. Thank God for bacon. See, Christ has fulfilled these requirements of the law for us. We're free from the civil and from the ceremonial parts of God's law. What I'm referring to here in asking this question is the moral aspects of God's law. Like, do not lie. Don't murder. Honor your parents. Be kind and generous. Show compassion and forgiveness. Don't gossip. Be sexually pure. Remain faithful to your spouse. Flee idolatry. Love God more than anything. These are examples of God's moral law. And that's the focus of my question today. Is it ever permissible for us to break God's moral law? Are we ever justified in God's sight to break his commands? Are there ever situations where he doesn't care if we do something that he's explicitly forbidden us not to do? Now, I'd expect and hope that our knee-jerk reaction to this question is, No! Of course not! It's never permissible for us to break God's moral law. God's standards for righteous behavior does not change, primarily because those standards are based on the character of God himself. So we're never justified in sinning. After all, God's word says, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And whoever claims to follow Christ must walk as Jesus did. So come on, Pastor Brad, do we really need to wrestle with this question? Yes, we do. Because we face many situations where the answers to this question are not as simple as it sounds. So let's start with some examples. Let me share with you very, a couple of very extreme ones. Suppose that you live in China, where the gathering of God's people is often illegal, and you decide to allow an underground church to meet in your home. Now, first you make the decision to do something uh, that is illegal, which is perhaps a violation of God's law, which says that we are to submit to our governing authorities. But now suppose that you have the church gathered there in a secret room in the back of your home, and there's a knock at the door. You go to the door, and it's the Chinese officials. And they say, are there Christians meeting here today? Now, what do you do? Do you lie in hopes of protecting your brothers and sisters? Or do you turn them over to the police? In this case, is it permissible to break God's law by lying in hopes that a greater good might come about? What about the tragic situation where a woman has an ectopic pregnancy? An ectopic pregnancy happens when a fertilized egg implants itself in the wrong place. And that is a life-threatening condition, often fatal condition for the mother. Now, what do you do? 
Do you take the baby's life in order to save the life of the mother? Do you essentially commit an abortion in order to protect the mother's life? Is it possible to, to, is it permissible to break God's law in order to save the life of another? Now, those are two extreme examples. Let's get a bit more practical. What about pressures that you face at your workplace to fudge a few numbers? Or to issue a financial report in the business that is perhaps a bit disingenuous? Or you're told to underestimate the cost of a particular job in an effort to bid to get the contract, knowing full well that the cost is going to be more than you're bidding and you're going to build the customer for the overage. So you feel, but you feel pressure to do these things because you know that, if, that, that you might get fired if you don't do them or you won't remain competitive. And the job market is really bad right now and you have a wife and three kids to provide for. Are we ever justified in being disingenuous in this way? Because, you know, that's just simply how everybody else does it. That's how the game's played. Or what if a friend gives you a gift that you really don't like? Or they cook for you a meal that is downright nasty. You feel pressure to be disingenuous and pretend like you love it. But God's word says, do not deceive one another. Or what about when your wife is wearing that outfit and say, how does this look on me? Do you always speak the truth? Or what about speeding? How many of you crept over the speed limit coming to church today? Is that a sin that is somehow permissible? Romans 13.1 clearly says we are to submit to governmental authority. So is God displeased every time that I exceed the posted speed limit? Uh, we say, but, 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 but Lord, I just have to go a little bit faster so I can get to church on time to worship you. Or we say... I've got a wife in the back seat that's going into labor and I got to get to the hospital. Stat. I could go on and on. The question is not just an academic theological curiosity. It's great relevance for how we go about living our lives. Is it ever permissible for us to break God's moral law? Uh, what should we do when we face situations when we appear to be stuck? What should we do in circumstances when we feel we have no choice but to, but to violate God's word? Does one wrong ever make a right? Can we ever commit a wrong in order to accomplish a greater good? Are there ever situations where God doesn't care if we do something that he's explicitly forbidden us not to do? And we often rationalize situations where we consider it okay to break God's moral law. Most of those rationalizations come down to three main lines of reasoning, three different common rationalizations we have to justify breaking God's law. And I want to value each of these Three, to see if they're ever justified. And the first is this. Oftentimes we say, my situation is unique and unprecedented. And many times we think it's okay to break God's law because we think that our situation is totally unique. It's unprecedented. This situation is so hard. No one else has faced anything like this before. Surely God will give me a pass on this one instance. Or the second, I don't have the strength to do what is right. We sometimes rationalize breaking God's moral law because we feel we don't have the ability to do what God commands. We're so burdened down by other things in life that we just don't have the energy and the ability to, to, to fully do what God has called us to do. And so we, God is compassionate in our weakness and he says, you know, that's okay. You don't have to be concerned about that. You've got enough to worry about. I know you can't endure that, so no worries. Here's a pass. Sometimes we think we don't have the strength to do what God's called us to do. Or the third, I'm stuck and there's no way out. I'm stuck. This one comes into play when we consider all the situations I've just described, where we feel trapped and we believe we have no other way forward to, but to do something that is contradiction 
with God's word. Now, are these rationalizations ever justified? Are we ever permitted to break God's moral law in any of these circumstances? And that's the question I want to ask here today, and I think you will find the biblical answers to this question encouraging, indeed. My primary text for answering this question is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So please turn with me now there to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as you do, let me set the context of the chapter. Paul is in the midst of dealing with all sorts of ethical matters besetting the early church. In previous chapters, he's dealt with situations uh, pertaining to sexual morality and lawsuits among believers and divorce and remarriage and meat sacrifice to idols and all the surrounding principles pertaining to Christian liberty and Christian freedom. And then in chapter 10, Paul really zeroes in on the subject of idolatry. And how God's people have always faced temptations to worship something created rather than the creator. And he says, he admonishes them. In verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters. In verse 14, flee from idolatry. In verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the, from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And he ultimately ends with the famous exhortation in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for God's glory. Every decision, every choice you make, make it for his glory. And so Paul is exhorting unbridled obedience. He is telling them to flee the temptations of idolatry, to never give up, to never compromise. He's calling Christians to live in full obedience to God, demonstrating absolute devotion to their Lord, so that in all things, everything they do, every action, every decision, it brings glory to God. And in the midst of this exhortation, we find one of the most curious and glorious verses dealing with matters of temptation and obedience in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And the text says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, there's a lot there in that passage, but it can really be boiled down to three summary truths, which happen to correspond very nicely with the three primary rationalizations that we often make. That, one, my situation is unique and unprecedented. Two, I don't have the strength to do what is right. And three, I'm stuck. And there's no way out. And these three rationalizations will be answered by three primary truths in this passage, and that will form the outline for the message today. And so let's look, three truths in our struggle for obedience. And let's dig into the first one now. The text begins, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And what exactly is that saying? It's basically saying that you will never face a temptation that nobody else has faced. There's a finite number of temptations out there. All of them are common to the experience of mankind. Now, there, there are, of course, a nearly limitless set of circumstances. Every person's experience is unique. Each person faces unique circumstances in which they're tempted to disobey God's moral law. But the broad categories of temptations we encounter, they're limited. So there's the temptation to lie, to get angry, to gossip, to look at pornography, to neglect your spouse, to be greedy, to be abrasive, to lash out, to, to love material things more than God, to be selfish, to never use your time to serve the Lord, to profane the name of Christ, to, to break any one of the Ten Commandments. The list of temptations we face could go on and on, but there is a limit to them. We could make an exhaustive list of all the moral temptations people face. And what 1 Corinthians 10.13 is saying is that you will never face a temptation that is not common to man. 
You will never be tempted in a way that many, many other people have not likewise similarly been tempted. Or to put it another way, in your struggle for obedience, you are not special. You are not special. You're never going to face a temptation that many, many other people haven't faced. You're not special in that regard. We all like to think of ourselves as special, don't we? I'm so special. And we tell our kids, oh, little Johnny, little Johnny is just so special. He's just so cute and so special, and we want to encourage our kids and build build our kids up and tell them just how special they are. It is true that each of us are special. In the sense that we are individual people uniquely crafted by God, we all have our own unique experiences. The total makeup of each person is unique. There's, There's no one exactly like you. You are special in that regard. But you're not special in the sense that your struggle for obedience is unparalleled. Thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions, perhaps billions, have faced the same hardships and temptations that you face. Now, your particular circumstances are special. Perhaps no one's been in that exact circumstance, in that exact job, in that exact marriage, facing those exact temptations that you have. But the category of temptation, the, a myriad of other people have gone before you and faced that same trial. And even though your struggles might be so very hard, let me tell you, there is always somebody who has it harder. There always is. You're not special in your struggles for obedience. And this reality should be a great encouragement to us. Many, many others have gone down this path. And so many have done the right thing and emerged through their struggles victorious on their journey. And so we can look to their example and we can learn from them and we can be inspired and encouraged by them. You're not alone in your fight against temptation because in this fight you are not uniquely special. And this truth means, therefore, that we don't get to rationalize giving into temptation when we say, well, nobody else has it as hard as I have it. Surely because of that, God doesn't care if I fail here. This is such a unique circumstance. You know, God's moral law doesn't apply to me here. We ought not to rationalize any sin by saying it is unique and unprecedented. That's just simply not true. You are not special. You don't get a special pass because your temptation and your trial, it is not unique. It just isn't. You do not face any temptation, trial, that is not common to the experience of man. And that truth is important as we move through this passage to the next truth. When we see Paul writing, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And what a wonderful reassurance of one of the most precious attributes of God, that God is faithful. The faithfulness of God means that he is always true to his promises. He will always do what he says he will do. God never violates his own word. He never allows his promises to go unfulfilled. And God has always promised to be devoted to his children. He will always be attentive to the needs of his people. He will never forsake those who love him. As Philippians 1, 6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And here Paul applies the truth of God's faithfulness to this particular matter of temptation. He says that God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. What an incredible truth. Do you realize what this is saying? 
It's saying that God carefully protects us from being overwhelmed and absolutely defeated by temptations to sin. That God is attentive to our needs so much so that he guards us from being impossibly destroyed by the enemy. In other words, God carefully moderates your trials and temptations. Carefully moderates them. Obviously, he doesn't remove the temptations entirely. I mean, we face trials and temptations all the time. We struggle and fail all the time. This text does not mean that God removes those trials and temptations completely. The text doesn't even come close to saying that. It's saying actually quite the opposite. Rather, it's saying that God carefully moderates those trials and temptations so that, as the text says, we will not be tempted beyond our ability to endure it. See, we all have the ability to resist temptation. And frankly, that ability, it varies from person to person. Different people have different levels of endurance or resolve to fight particular temptations. So, for example, for a recovering alcoholic, the temptation towards drunkenness is probably much greater than it is for the person who's never been drunk. Or for the person who is very financially stable, the temptation to cheat on their taxes is perhaps less than it is for the person who is in dire financial straits, scraping for money wherever they can find it. And so our susceptibility to temptation, it varies from person to person. And we all have a limit of temptation where, where the temptation if it becomes so great, we will most certainly succumb to it. And so let's take a light and trivial example of this. I am personally very tempted by sweet desserts. Not so much cake or cookies, but put some ice cream in front of me or homemade pie, especially banana cream pie. I don't think I have it within me to say no to that. I just, I just don't have the ability. If you were to place a piece of banana cream pie right in front of me right now, this sermon would stop. Because my willpower would be just totally destroyed. I'm in. I'm done for. God knows exactly how weak I am to that particular temptation. And God knows exactly what your level of vulnerability is to every particular temptation you might face. Now think about that. For every person here in this room, God knows exactly how susceptible you are to any effort to entice you or to cause you to disobey God's moral law. He knows you intimately and perfectly, far, far better than you even know yourself. And this text says that that then God takes that knowledge and he intervenes and he protects and he helps us so that it's always possible for us to emerge through our trials and circumstances with our integrity intact. The Lord watches over us, and he sovereignly protects us from certain unwinnable defeats. He is an interventionist God who will not let his people be irrevocably corrupted or defeated. But how does he do this? How does he do that? Well, in two ways, really. First, by controlling circumstances. Sometimes uh, he protects you from situations that he knows in which you will certainly fail. So, for example, if he knows that you are going to fall, if you find yourself alone with this particular person, the opposite gender, then perhaps he will intervene so you don't have that chance meeting. Or if he knows that, you know, you will certainly enter into this conversation and will lead to gossip and slander, perhaps he will intervene so you don't see that person, you don't have that conversation. Or if he knows that you will cheat on that test or that you will uh, lie on that report because the temptation is just so powerful, perhaps God will intervene so that defeat is not certain. Or if he knows that you will eat for you that oh-so-bad-for-you banana cream pie, perhaps he will find a way to stop that pie from getting to you in the first place. God protects his children from sin. And he does this sometimes by controlling our circumstances. But he also does it, most commonly, I think, by empowering his people for righteousness. So that when the temptation is coming, 
You know, perhaps God doesn't take the situation away, but rather he gives the Christian supernatural ability to bear up under it. He empowers that person through the Holy Spirit to endure that trial and temptation with integrity. I'm still waiting for that supernatural power to, in my battle to resist the enticing lure of sweet desserts. But if, if eating those things was a sin, God would certainly give me the ability to resist that temptation. Not, not that I would resist it perfectly every single time. I would certainly fail at times. But I would have the Holy Spirit there granting me the power to resist it if I so chose. And so here's the point. God never allows us to be in a situation that is so overwhelming or enticing that we cannot endure it. Look at the text. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Could it be more clear? And friends, this is, should be so encouraging to us. Because if we're all honest, there's something in your life, some area of obedience or temptation that is an ongoing struggle. You feel continually defeated by it. Every day is a battle and you feel like you're constantly losing the fight. And perhaps you've totally lost hope, feeling this is just my lot in life. I will always have this struggle and it will always get the best of me. But I want to tell you, friends, as strongly as I can, that is a lie. Direct from the pit of hell itself. God is faithful to his people. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to endure it. He loves you too much for that to happen. That's right. He is a faithful God. He will not abandon his children. And God carefully moderates the trials and the temptations that we face. Sometimes that means he keeps you from circumstances that will certainly cause you to fall. And other times he grants the supernatural power to resist temptations. Lord. And this journey is not easy, and you will fail, and you will fall at some point, even with God's help. But Christian, no sin has total mastery over you. We are not a defeated people. Sin has been conquered. And that's Paul's entire point when he writes in Romans chapter 8, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The hardest battle is done. It was won at the cross. The enemy's destiny is assured. And our helpless bondage to sin is over. This is the gospel. The truth is that Christ has set us free. We are slaves to sin no more. And as John 8.36 says, if, you, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And it makes a mockery of the cross when we say, I, I can't have victory over that sin or temptation. It makes a mockery of the cross when we say, I, I, I cannot be obedient to God in that way. Listen, Christian, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in you. And the same God who spoke the universe into existence has careful watch over your life and is orchestrating things so that you can experience the victory over sin that Christ has already won. And don't think you can fight this battle on your own. That struggle with honesty or lust or gossip or selfishness or pride or greed. You can't win that on your own. That temptation to give in to anger and wrath and malice and slander and spiritual apathy. You can't defeat that on your own. You need God's help. And Christ offers that to you in abundance. Hebrew 4. 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God knows intimately the battle 
that you face. Jesus knows intimately the battle that you face because he knows what it's like to face temptation himself, and he has overcome that temptation perfectly, and he has promised to help you in it. So don't give into rationalizations and say, I'm too weak. I have no choice. I'm not strong enough. That temptation is too great. Only a slave would say that. And if you are in Christ, you are not a slave. You are an heir to a promise. You're one of God's precious children. You will never be tempted irrevocably towards sin. God is faithful. He will never let you be tempted beyond your ability. Let us never rationalize disobedience by saying, I just can't do it. In Christ, you can. And for the sake of God's glory, you must. But, 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 but. What about that third rationalization? The one where we feel that we're totally stuck. Like all the situations I presented earlier, from speeding to hiding an underground church in the secret back room of your house in China. Can we find ourselves in situations where we have no choice but to violate one of God's moral commands? Thankfully, this passage helps us in that situation. It makes sense of those circumstances with this concluding phrase. But with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The key phrase there is way of escape. The Greek literally means a way out or a path forward. The imagery here is really one of an exit. And the text is saying that whenever you're faced uh, with any and every temptation, there is a way out. There is a path of escape, an exit from your situation. What kind of exit? What kind of way out? Well, Well, it's one that will make you be able to endure the temptation. In other words, it's a way to go through the temptation with your integrity intact, a way to get through any circumstance, any trial, without ever having to break one of God's commands. There is always a way out, an exit, a way of escape when we feel trapped and tempted. Now, that's a pretty remarkable statement, basically saying you're never trapped. There's always a way forward in any circumstance or any temptation. There's always a way to emerge from a situation where you don't give in to the temptation of sin, sin, which therefore leads me, leads us to conclude, point three, God always provides a righteous path through temptation. He always provides a righteous path. It's hard to argue with that biblically. The text here is pretty plain and straightforward. But this conclusion is also supported by many other passages and broader theological reasons. So consider again Hebrews 4.15, speaking of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted in many, many ways, yet he never sinned. He never broke one of God's commands. Surely he found himself in very challenging circumstances. Yet he always emerged through those temptations victorious, having found a path forward. He always emerged having followed God's way of escape. Now you might say, well, that's Jesus. God doesn't hold us to the same standard. Really? I've already mentioned Matthew 5.48, which says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It doesn't say do your best or try really hard or be pretty good. It says be perfect. Never violate one of God's commands. 
Or 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to follow Christ must walk as Jesus did. We are told to strive after the sinless perfection modeled for us in Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Be imitators of God, his beloved children. The standard we are to pursue is God himself. And that standard is the perfect standard indeed. But, 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 what if I need to break a commandment in order to accomplish a greater good? Like allowing a group of Christians to meet in my home in China, but I need to lie in order to do so. Or I need to get to the hospital quickly, and I need to break the speed limit in order to do so. Or I need to compromise a bit to keep my business open so I don't have to lay uh, my employees off, and then their whole family suffers. Surely a wrong can sometimes make a right, can't it? Well, 1 Corinthians 10.13 and these other passages indicate that it is never permissible to break God's moral law, even if it's terribly inconvenient, even if it brings suffering and hardship to others, even to accomplish a greater good, because there is always a way of escape, and God always desires perfection from us, never compromise. But, 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 what about all those examples? Maybe you're saying, I'm not liking this sermon anymore. Because it seems to me that you're saying that I can never go beyond the speed limit, even to save somebody's life. Are you saying I can never trespass at an abortion clinic to protest abortion? Are you saying I can't smuggle Bibles into China? Are you saying I can't pretend to like that terribly nasty meal that was served in my small group? Ethicists call these kind of situations tragic moral choices. There are choices that are considered tragic because... We have to do something that is immoral in order to accomplish a greater good. But 1 Corinthians 10.13 would indicate here that there's no such thing. Because there's always a way of escape. And I would submit to you, therefore, that there is no such thing as a tragic moral choice for a Christian. That every seemingly challenging situation has a way of escape. And that whenever we're faced with a situation that seems like a tragic moral choice, we are either, one, not seeing the situation correctly, two, not rightly understanding God's biblical ethic, or three, perhaps most commonly, we are not willing to face the consequences of what righteousness requires. So let's talk about some specific examples here. First, what about the situation with the ectopic pregnancy? And you have to abort the baby in order to save the life of the mother. Yet doesn't God's word say you shall not kill? No, it doesn't. It doesn't say you shall not kill. It says you shall not murder. And that is a big distinction. There's a big distinction between killing and murder. Our civil laws recognize this. The Bible recognizes this. In some cases, killing is justified. Like in the Old Testament, God commanded all kinds of leaders to go and and kill people all the time as an act of punishment or cleansing. Or killing is also justified in self-defense. If someone is genuinely threatening your life or the life of a loved one or the life of your family, you can defend yourself, even if it means even if it results in another person's death. Our laws provide for this. And in the case of an ectopic pregnancy, aborting a child that is almost certainly going to take the life of the mother, that, I think, can be considered an act of self-defense. It's not murder. And so you're not really breaking one of God's laws. You're killing, and that is very, very sad. It is a grievous thing. as a consequence of the fall that we ought to be broken about. But it is a morally permissible type of killing because it's self-defense. You see, that challenging circumstance is understood 
Uh, it made sense of if you just think more carefully about the biblical ethic. But what about cheating on the job to get more business? Especially since that's how the game is played and everyone does it. And you know that you either lose your job or your company will go bankrupt if you don't play the game. Well, last time I checked, the standard for Christian obedience is not determined by what everyone else is doing. It's determined by God's word. And the highest priority that God has for us is not that we will be happy or that we will have wealth. It is that we reflect his perfect standard of unparalleled righteousness. And sometimes that means we, means we need to make the hard decision. and Stand by our principles, even if it means sacrifice or suffering. But you say, if I do that, I'm going to, go, I'm going to lose my job and then I'll lose my health insurance. My wife has cancer. To which I'll say, is God faithful? Do you trust him to provide for your needs? Is there perhaps a way of escape here for you? Maybe God will actually preserve your job if you do, do the right thing. But even if he doesn't, won't he eventually lead you to another place of employment and, and provision? Give you another source of income that you can have so that you don't have to compromise your integrity? He always pr- promises to provide for us a way of escape. Maybe that way of escape is actually leading you to another job. Because he doesn't promise that that way of escape will be devoid of hardship. See, sometimes the way of escape is not easy. Sometimes it's the hardest option before you. Sometimes it's a path that involves much suffering and anxiety and uncertainty. Sometimes integrity requires sacrifices and trust and faith in our faithful God to provide. So which decision would God have you make? What about what path would Jesus himself choose? What about that situation where you're presented with just an awful gift? Or you're served that atrocious meal? Do you pretend like you really like it? Do you lie and say that it's great? Here's what I do. I usually compliment the person for their generosity or their hard work. I say as sincerely as I can, thank you so much for your kindness. I really appreciate it. Thank you so for working so hard to provide this meal for us. I'm very grateful for it. Now, that usually gets me off the hook, and it's true. I really am appreciative and thankful for the sacrifice they've made. Of course, now you're all on to me. <laughs> and I put myself in a harder bind than I've ever been in before. But you see, we need to think hard about these things. We need to be careful that we don't rationalize speaking untruths to one another. And parents, we need to think hard about certain holiday traditions that we tell little ones about. Is it ever permissible to encourage somebody to believe something that isn't true? We need to wrestle with that. Now, what about speeding? You realize... We're breaking laws all the time. We all are. There's some crazy, goofy laws that are still on the books. From 150 years ago, they're still in place today. We break them all the time. They have long since ceased to be enforced. Here's some fun examples. You realize in many states it's illegal to play dominoes or marbles on Sundays. It's a true law. Or in Salem, West Virginia, it's against the law to eat candy less than an hour and a half before church. Or neither Denison, Texas, or Bristol, Tennessee, adjusting your socks in public can earn you a year's jail time. Or get this, ladies, if you live in Michigan, it is still the official law of the state that if you live in Michigan, women, you have to get your husband's permission before you change your hairstyle. 
No joke. Or in New York, wearing clingy, body-hugging clothes carries with it a $25 fine. Goodbye, skinny jeans. And when you're driving at night through rural Pennsylvania, state law still requires you to stop every mile and send up a rocket signal. Now, these are still officially the laws of our land, and technically you're breaking these laws every time you don't do them. But I I just don't think God is offended when, as I drive through Pennsylvania, I don't stop every mile and fire off a bottle rocket. And I don't think God is judging me if I go home after church to play today and play dominoes with my kids. You see, does God's word really teach that we are to obey all the laws of our government? It doesn't. That's a trick question. It says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to governing authorities. That is different from saying, let every person perfectly obey every law that's written in the books. And this is the brilliance of God's word. We are to be subject to the people in charge, not to the particular letters of the law. We are to be subject to the law as it is enforced not as it's written in the books. Now, to some of you, that may seem like splitting hairs, but I'm telling you, that is a big difference. And that distinction helps us in the matter of speeding. It's technically not breaking God's law if you creep up over the speed limit because the authorities typically don't mind if you go a couple miles over. But you are breaking God's law if you drive in such a way that gets you a ticket. So the moral speed limit is not the speed which is posted, it's the speed which is enforced, which means that it's okay to go with the flow of traffic. Because the authorities have decided that that's okay. But if you're driving in such a way that when you see a cop, a cop, your heart skips a beat and you slam on the brakes, as happens to me sometimes, honestly, it means that you're not operating in true submission to the governmental authorities and your conscience bear witness to the fact and now you're violation of God's law. So, just, what do you do? Just drive in such a way that you don't get a ticket. And for some of you, that line of reasoning was worth the price of admission today, right there. But you see, you dig into, you understand the biblical ethic more fully. The perception of being stuck actually kind of goes away. But what about when the government is corrupt? And it won't let you practice your faith. And the laws say it's illegal for you to gather as Christians or to pray or to have a Bible. I think we're justified in breaking those laws. In fact, I say that we're obligated to do so. What did Peter say before the Jewish leaders when they said, hey, you shall never speak of this Jesus again? Peter's response was, we must obey God rather than men. And that commandment to submit to governing authorities has within it an inherent exemption that we only submit to the governing authorities insofar as they don't command us to do something contrary to God's word. We don't have to submit to our authorities when they... When, when our government requires us to break God's law. It's okay, therefore, for Christians to gather and to pray, even if it's illegal to do so, or to smuggle Bibles into places where they are not permitted. But what if you need to lie in order to protect yourself and others from persecution, as may be the case in China or the Middle East? Now it gets more difficult. And this is where our faith is tested. How far will you go to do what is right? And how much do you trust our faithful God to provide for you that way of escape? 
And how much of a sacrifice are you willing to make to preserve your integrity and to remain obedient to the Lord? You see, sometimes that way of escape, it's through persecution and suffering. So let's take the most extreme example. What if you are captured by the Taliban and asked, are you a Christian? Because if you are, we are going to kill you. Now, what should you do? Do you lie and say, no, I'm not a Christian? Would that decision honor and please God? Would God have you deny him in order to continue living? Would God prefer that you tell the truth about your allegiance to him, even if that results in your death? I think in this most radical example, God would want us to tell the truth. And if we ought to tell the truth in a way that brings about our death, perhaps we need to tell the truth in situations that maybe brings about other suffering as well. You see, sometimes we think that God always wants us to have the easiest path, the path that we most like, the path that we would choose for ourselves. But that's simply not true. Sometimes God desires us to go down the difficult road, even if that road doesn't make much sense to us. This is why Christians get cancer or why they get persecuted for their faith. No one said being a Christian was easy. Obedience in the hard places does not come without great cost. So if you're hosting a Chinese church in your home and the authorities ask you about it, perhaps you need to tell the truth. Yes, it means that some people might get arrested. But how do you know that's not God's plan? How do you know God doesn't want those people to face persecution because somehow that will propel the gospel forward in dramatic, incredible, powerful ways? But most importantly, who are you to stand as an arbiter of what is best in God's sight? Who are you to pick and choose when to obey the moral law in order to accomplish a greater good, in order to accomplish something that you think is most important? Who are you to say, I don't need to follow God's law in this distance because this is more important? You see, we're not responsible to bring about every good thing that we can envision coming about. We're responsible to do what is right, what is moral, what is godly, what is righteous, what Jesus himself would do. We would strive to have perfect obedience to the moral law of God. And God doesn't need you to violate his law in order to accomplish something good. He doesn't need you to lie in order to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need you to be dishonest with the job so that your family is protected and provided for. He doesn't need you to compromise your integrity in order to advance the gospel. You see, if we go down that line of reasoning, when does it end? If it's okay to rationalize breaking one of God's commands in one particular circumstance, what's to stop us then from, from doing it in another, and another, and another, and another? And this is how people end up murdering abortion doctors. Because they reason that their cause is right. Because they're accomplishing a greater good. The saving of the lives of the unborn. And so they justify wicked murder. And if we go down that path, our whole... Biblical ethic breaks down because now we're not worried about pursuing the perfect, just what is expedient. And besides, if it's permissible for us to sometimes break God's law, then Jesus would also be able to break God's law when it was convenient for him. And he never did. Never compromised his integrity to bring about a greater good, even though his path required him to go through great suffering. So is it permissible for us to disobey God's law? The argument I've been making here today is an emphatic no. Even in the hardest, most difficult circumstances, let us never rationalize disobedience. 
if we do, if we, if we are rationalizing disobedience, we might as well interpret 1 Corinthians 10.13 in this way. Here's a rationalized understanding of this text. Therefore, because God is flexible, when you are tempted in such a way that causes you to sin, God will look the other way so that you will not feel bad about it. Isn't that what we're really saying when we rationalize disobedience? That's really what we're saying. God has called us, though, to a much higher standard than that. And there is grace in this. Abundant grace. We will fail. We will fall countless times. We will struggle. We will feel defeated. But God's grace in us is unending. His greatest concern isn't that you succeed. It's that you try. It's that you strive. We don't need to be legalists, constantly worrying about following every jot and tittle of the law. We're not slaves to the law. But we are slaves to righteousness. Consider Romans 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. We must always strive to do what is right. Never rationalizing disobedience to God's law. Yes, we will fail. Yes, we will face many, many hard situations that we just will struggle and that we will disappoint the Lord in. But his grace is abundant to us in those times. But let us never accept that failure as permissible. Let us never come before God rationalizing our sin or failing to confess a failure. Let us always strive for perfection. And thanks be to God that he will never let us face a trial that we cannot endure. He will never put us in a situation where we have no choice but to sin. Because God is faithful. And he never compromises on his faithfulness to his people. And therefore, let us never compromise in our efforts to be faithful to him. Let me pray.